Nerdette is supported by the Sympathizer podcast from HBO. Join host Philip Nguyen in conversation with the cast, crew, and author Viet Thanh Nguyen as they discuss the making of this historic HBO original limited series. Stream new episodes of HBO's The Sympathizer Sundays exclusively on Max. And listen to The Sympathizer podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. Think on your feet for our Fast and Curious 5K, a -a one-of-a-kind race hosted by WBEZ and the Chicago Sun-Times on Saturday, July 27th at Humboldt Park. More info and early bird registration at wbez.org slash events. From WBEZ Chicago, this is Nerdette. I'm Greta Johnson, and we have somehow made it to another Friday, which means it is time to get ready for the weekend, and we are here to help. It's going to be a fun episode today. We are going to talk to a literal brain scientist about, yes, brains, and... You will just sit there saying, this is the best cookie I've ever made. I guarantee it. A legit cookie expert is going to tell us about the best holiday cookie of the year. But first, we have a delightful panel to chat about the week that was. Here today is NPR Books editor Barry Hardiman. Barry, hello. Hello. Our other guest is Eliana Doctorman, who writes about culture and society for time. Eliana, hi. Hi. Thanks for having me. I am very excited to talk to both of you today. Um, So it seems like probably the biggest story of the week is the fact that some of the first COVID vaccines in the U.S. were administered. Um, healthcare workers and other high risk people were at the top of that list. It looks like people who aren't high risk and who aren't, you know, over 65 probably won't get a vaccine until this spring at the earliest. Um, but you know, also this week, another vaccine was approved by the FDA and we've just heard about an in-home test that people will be able to buy starting next month, which got us thinking, like, have y'all started to let yourselves picture the light at the end of this tunnel? Have you planned a beach vacation for November (laughs) like is there sort of a month next year that you're thinking like okay things might actually kind of be somewhat related to normal by then Eliana let's start with you yeah I mean this is a somewhat loaded question for me in that I was supposed to have a like big actual wedding this year I delayed it to next year it's supposedly happening next November. Oh, so November is your month. <laughs> and so, yeah, so oh, I wow. I have not allowed myself to really like even think about it at all or do anything with it or think about whether we could travel abroad for a honeymoon or travel anywhere. <laughs> like I just do not even put it in my mind. So I'm like concentrating on the smaller things. Like mm-hmm. what month will I be able to go to a movie theater again? Like mm-hmm. when will people mm-hmm. feel okay with that? Which I also, I have no idea. That might also be November. Who knows? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's so weird. I feel like especially early on, I really liked having those like May, it'll all be over by May. It'll be fine. Yeah. And then it like, it's interesting just to think about how much we've recalibrated that, right? Where now, like, I don't even let myself, like, I cannot get my hopes up yet because I, I can't afford mm-hmm. the devastation of, like, if things are still weird in March and that's when I thought it would be fine, like, how would I handle that? What do you, you're nodding, Barry, do you, is that kind of where you're at? No, also? I just didn't, like, I, it's that we've just cried wolf so much on that mm-hmm. that I just, I, I'm, I'm with you. Now I'm just trying to make my um, quarantine life as, comfortable as possible because I assume that I'll be in it for the rest of my life. So now I'm just like, okay, I guess it's just, it's up to me to buy as much many fur blankets and as many comfortable things and to be like super excited about the amount of baking and to like really put my heart into the hot lunch. You know what I mean? So 
like I am with you, like the the recalibration, I can't do it again because it's just too heartbreaking. And funny, now that I've said that, sometimes I I think, what if it starts and I'm like, oh, no, I have all of these like comfy jumpsuits now and I want to wear <laughs> them to ready. work and I yeah. can't. Yeah, I <laughs> yes, I also worry about not being ready to go back when it is time, which is such a weird thing to worry about. Yes, it's just like such Mm-mm. a bizarre inversion of everything. So we're in the middle of December. We're also in the middle of a global pandemic. A lot of places are still holding on to the idea of holiday work parties for some reason. (laughs) Uh, I feel like, you know, they can be awkward at best, even in real life, let alone on Zoom. I mean, ours had like a talent show component. We had ours yesterday. Oh, really? Yeah, it actually went a lot better than I thought it would. What did you do, Greta? Oh, I know. What was your talent? I have no talents. (laughs) Let's be real. I mean, I know what your talent is, obviously. (laughs) We're, we're, we are experiencing it, but I didn't know if you also juggled. Yeah, no, no, no. Um, I'm curious, though, like, did you have a holiday work party, Barry, at NPR? Um, there was. It was virtual as well. Mm-hmm. And there was a um, the great and good Stephen Thompson did trivia oh, um, for everybody. That's fun. Um, which, again, like, that's the nicest thing you can do for what is obviously like a horrifying thing, which is to have a virtual <laughs> work party, a holiday work party. But I also find the in-person holiday party kind of horrible, too, because I'm like too old to get like plastered. You know what I mean? Like I can't it's not going to be so fun anymore. Mm-hmm. So I to be honest with you, I was kind of like, Meh, this is fine. But I will say many, many people were horrified by the idea of the virtual party and spending more time on Zoom than we already do. Yeah. Yeah. What do you think, Eliana? Did time have one? I'm trying to think of how to phrase this without making my <laughs> uh-huh. employer sound super okay. lame. Uh-huh. <laughs> we d- we had a uh, a town hall at 9 a.m., which is wow. not what I would say is a full party. It was sort of more of a wow. usually we have our person of the year issue party and oh, holiday sure. party all wrapped into one. And it's just this big fun thing. So I think that they didn't even want to attempt to do that. So we did like a word search. There was a musical performance, but it was at, it was fully at like, I was drinking coffee, sort of also looking at email. Like this was not, I maybe I shouldn't admit that I was not fully committed to, <laughs> to the town hall. To I think fine. Town hall but... Do you heard it here, Time Magazine. <laughs> this is a really committed employee. So it's pretty impressive. <laughs> Wow. It was, uh, yeah, it it definitely did not have any of the hallmarks, good or bad, of a normal office holiday party. Fair enough. So something I've been raving about a lot this week that I was really curious to see if either of you has seen yet is The Wilds, which came out on Amazon Prime last week. Um, Eliana, you managed to at least see the first episode, right? Yeah. So I watched the first episode um, when we first sort of connected about it. And uh-huh. then I watched two more and yes. started to hate the show even yes. more as I watched more episodes. I'm sorry. That's fair. Barry, have you seen it? I have seen it. Okay. So the way I have been describing this show while yelling at people that they need to watch it is that it is uh, Lord of the Flies, but with teenage girls and in modern day times. Uh, there's a plane crash and a lot of intense voiceovers. Let's listen to a clip from the beginning of the first episode. So if we're talking about what happened out there, then yeah, there was trauma. But being a teenage girl in normal ass America, that was the real living hell. (laughs) I I just can't with that line. (laughs) 
it's so perfect. I was trying to figure yeah. out why I love this show so much, even though I also can like admit that it's absurd. And I think a lot of it actually comes back to My So-Called Life, a show that aired in the early 90s with Claire Danes as a like actual 16-year-old girl. And in that show, like the emotional stakes were so high, like literally in the pilot of My So-Called Life, she says like high school is a battlefield for your heart. And the fact that like it feels like that level of emotional stakes, but then to actually like put these girls on a desert island, I just think it's like, I don't know, it's kind of like the perfect setting for like all of your intense emotions to actually be legitimate for the first time ever in some way, which I just think is hilarious and amazing. Eliana, why do you hate it? Okay. That's actually the way that you explained it. Like that is an interesting metaphor, right? That's an interesting metaphor for just how girls interact with each other and the mm-hmm. trauma of girlhood. So I totally yes. get what it's going for. I will also admit that I think I'm just like not in a headspace right now for this show. Um, I think I'd previously oh, described sure. it as kind of like Emily in Paris, but for the second half of the pandemic when we're all despairing and have no hope anymore. <laughs> um, it's just sort of like, like I know it's dumb and I want to be able to enjoy how kind of like silly it is, except that each episode ends with like some horrible thing happening yeah and yeah. i'm just like no not not this week this is not like let me just flip over to disney plus and watch frozen or something like that instead mm-hmm, mm-hmm. but also i mean th- the line that you just played some of the dialogue just makes me kind of want to like collapse on the floor cringing because oh. well, it's, and it's I, a lot it's like, but i mean have you heard teenage girls talk to each other sometimes their dialogue makes me want to collapse on the floor that's fair <laughs> that's fair <laughs> It's, Sorry, that was terrible. I love Teenage Girl. I was a teenage girl. I, you know, but I also sort of recognize the absurdity of the way it's constructed mm-hmm. as being true to l- not life, but having having roots in a dramatic girlhood that I recognize. <laughs> so, Eliana, do you think are like are you going to keep hate watching it, or are you going to absolve yourself from having to finish this series because it makes you sad? I probably will not keep watching unless I run out of episodes of the West Wing is leaving Netflix oh, in a yeah, few that's days a, yep, and totally. that's been my rewatch lately so yep. once I run out all bets yeah. are off I might circle back to <laughs> Lord of the Flies with women <laughs> Barry you're a person we normally have on the show to talk about books Eliana you usually come on to talk about movies uh it is the end of the year which means that both of you I'm sure have spent a lot of time thinking of what the best books and movies of the year have been. Uh, We thought, just to make things extra weird, uh, that it would be fun to turn the tables and ask you, Eliana, about books and you, Barry, about the best movie you saw this year. So, Barry, let's start with you. Best movie of the year. What do you got? The movie that I... Um, it's not necessarily the movie I enjoyed the most this year, but the one that I found really made me think mm-hmm. and included two of my absolute favorite performances I've seen in a long time. And also the clothing was um, was The Nest, um, which stars uh, Jude Law and Carrie Coons. And it takes place in the era of Wall Street. So we're in the 80s. Again, clothes. Uh, just, I mean, I can't with the shoulder pads. And Carrie Coons obviously is just, I mean, amazing. But I love a ne'er-do-well Jude Law. Like, give me, I want him to play Dickie Greenleaf for the rest of his life in whatever shape with whatever baldness okay. is happening. Like, okay. I love him doing that. So um, for me, The Nest was the the movie that I, again, it's not, it's like kind of creepy to watch. It wasn't like, it wasn't like watching Emma, which was, you know, Laugh Riot, mm. but it was, um, it really made me think and I, I, I would highly recommend it. Interesting. Um, all right, Eliana. So what do you think was the best book you read this year? 
So I I think hands down the best book I read, though I know you've already talked about it on the podcast, so I'm just going to name drop it and then move on to something else, mm-hmm. was Vanishing Half. Right? That was, Ugh, me too. Yeah. 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 It, yeah. it was brilliant. Um, something that's really stuck with me this year um, is Zadie Smith's book, Intimations. It's mm. a series of essays, mm. and she churned it out in the first few months of the pandemic, which in itself is just such a feat and so wild. Um, but she, the book is a lot about her personal experiences in the first months living in New York City during the pandemic, um, but also how those personal experiences sort of reflect on the social and economic and racial divides that already existed before the pandemic and that COVID just exacerbated. Um, and so she talks a lot about how she has a line in there, and I'm going to butcher it, but the sentiment is basically like, death comes for us all, but in America, at least you have the chance as the highest bidder to postpone it as long as possible. Um, And she sort of reflects on her daily interactions with people in her life when she goes to get a massage and the the masseuse and how they'll sort of talk about, oh, it's a snow day, so we both have to have our kids out of school. But for her as a writer who has sort of flexible hours, that's a very Mm -hmm. different demand than having to shut down your business for a day because COVID happened and your kid is not at school anymore, they're at home. So it's, it really sort of is the best writing I think that I've read about the pandemic during the pandemic, really reflecting on some of the global implications, but in a very personal way. Mm -hmm. Uh, So I, I would highly recommend that. Well, thank you both. This was so much fun to talk with you and happy holidays. Yeah. Happy holidays to you too. This was so fun. Happy holidays. Eliana Doctorman and Barry Hardiman, delightful humans. If you are wondering what Barry the Book Expert's favorite book of the year was, she briefly mentioned it was The Vanishing Half by Britt Bennett. Great book, great taste. And Eliana, our movie expert, highly recommends an upcoming Pixar movie called Soul. Next week, we're going to check in with some of our other favorite friends of the show about more of the best stuff of 2020. So keep an eye out for that. With that in mind, 2020 is finally coming to an end. And it has been quite a year for a lot of different things, but I would just like to give a shout out to feelings. I mean, are you kidding? Like between rational feelings and irrational feelings and ups and downs and gray area, good God, the exquisite gray area. We have all been doing so much mental processing this year of so many unprecedented things. And that has put a renewed focus on that big wrinkly organ that is doing all the work. Our brains. Lisa Feldman Barrett is a professor at Northeastern University. She's an expert in both neuroscience and psychology. Her most recent book is called Seven and a Half Lessons About the Brain. And in it, she debunks some common misconceptions about that thing between our ears. There is so much in this book. It is truly excellent. But one idea in particular that I think is really fascinating is what Lisa calls the idea of body budgeting. And it all starts with a question that I don't know, maybe you haven't actually thought about, which is like, why do we even have brains in the first place? So if you go all the way back to the Cambrian period, Mm -hmm. um, and you can think about it as about 400 million years ago, give or take, what we can see is that the earth was populated by creatures who didn't have brains at all. Mm-hmm. And um, actually, the opening line of the 
of the essay mm-hmm. is really, <laughs> you know, the, the world was once ruled by creatures without brains. This is a biological statement, not a political statement. I mean, because sometimes it kind of feels like the world is ruled by creatures without brains, right? <laughs> what do you but, mean? Yeah. <laughs> but it actually was, which leads us to this interesting question of like, why did brains evolve? Why do we even have brains? What are they good for? And it turns out that uh, brains evolve to control bodies. So as bodies got bigger and uh, became full of systems like for your heart and your lungs and um, to excrete waste and so on, as bodies got bigger, brains got bigger. Your brain's main job is not to think and be rational. It's to control your body. And it's always doing this and the metaphor is running a budget for your body so your brain is not budgeting money it's budgeting salt and glucose and water and um, other nutrients to control the systems of your body to keep you alive and well because everything you do has some cost so the most expensive things your brain can do is move your body around Mm -hmm. and learn something new And many of the things that we do could be thought of metaphorically as deposits, like Mm -hmm. eating healthfully or sleeping Mm -hmm. or giving each other a kind word or a hug. These are all metaphorically kind of deposits into our body. Mm -hmm. So to that end, like how often, like if you're just having a day and you're feeling especially crabby and like everybody's just kind of pissing you off how often do you, knowing what you know, like sit there and think to yourself, like, okay, what's going on with my body budget? Like, how am I doing on those essentials? Always know. Really? So the first question, yeah. So the first question I now almost always ask my, I almost always ask myself is, how's my body budget doing? Hmm. Am I tired? Am I thirsty? Do I need something to, you know, when's the last time I ate? How much sleep did I get? If I wake up in the morning and I'm feeling pretty groggy or, you know, I'm feeling kind of cranky, frankly, <laughs> um, I know, I know I'm going to have a body budgeting, cha- you know, a challenging day. And in my house now, you know, this is a concept that we use with each other. So um, I asked my daughter this morning, how are you doing? And she's like, I'm having a body budgeting pr- problem today. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, oh, do you need a hug? And she's like, yes. Mm-hmm. Um So it's not an either or, Greta. It's not like there is a mental cause or a physical cause. All mental causes are, in the end, some kind of physical change. It's not being reductionist because there are hundreds of little physical changes that are happening that give you the, the mood or the thought or the perception that you're having. And so you can just simply ask yourself, well, if you're feeling really crappy, maybe it's just that you don't have the spoons, you know, to kind of deal with all the things going on in your life at the moment. And you should be a little more compassionate with yourself and also drink some water. It's probably not a bad idea. Yeah. Water, always a good idea. It's really interesting to hear you use that term spoons. Cause I actually wanted to ask you how similar you think this is to spoon theory. Uh, you're, we're referring to something Christine Miserandino came up with and essentially spoon theory is a way to describe what it's like to live with a chronic illness. The idea is that you know, you only have so many spoons in a day. You spend some, you get some. It's similar to body budgeting. It sounds much better than I just spent my last nerve, <laughs> which is what I what I used to what I used to say. Well, and it's just um, such a convenient shorthand for telling yeah. someone where you're at. You know, like I don't even use it with myself as much as I use it to communicate with friends about like I just don't know if I have the spoons for that right now. You know? Yeah. And I 
right now, given everything going on politically and with COVID and so on, yeah. we not only have to be more compassionate with other with each other, we also have to be more compassionate with ourselves. And remember that every time your body budget is not quite solvent, you know, every time you're you're making a little withdrawal and um, you don't replenish that with a little deposit, you build up a deficit over time and that will leave you feeling pretty uh, wretched uh, eventually and also will leave you less resilient for dealing with the slings and arrows that life throws at you. Mm -hmm. I think one of the hardest things for me can be to like sometimes I don't know if exercise is going to be a deposit or a withdrawal. You know what I mean? Yeah, I do. So I will say that exercise is always a withdrawal. The question is whether it's going to be an investment that you um, get a return on. <laughs> Look, getting up in the morning and standing up and getting out of bed is a withdrawal. In fact, people think that cortisol is a stress hormone, but cortisol is just a hormone that gets glucose into your bloodstream quickly so mm-hmm. that you can um, do something. You know, if your brain is predicting that you have to do something energetic, like drag your sorry <laughs> behind out of bed in the morning, um, you're going to have a flood of cortisol. And in fact, all of us, when we wake up in the morning, have a surge of cortisol, which is what helps us get out of bed. Hmm. So I would say the way to think about exercise is that it you are making a major withdrawal. And in order to make it worthwhile, you have to um, either make a deposit immediately, like drink, have a protein shake, you know, do something to get you through that workout. And also Mm -hmm. replenish, that is, Mm -hmm. make deposits afterwards, you know, replenish what you've spent. So drink enough water, get enough sleep. I mean, I sound I sound like a nagging mother. And (laughs) if you talk to my daughter, she will tell you I am a nagging mother. But right now I'm speaking to you as a neuroscientist. And I'm telling you that it's really important. And I would say similarly, Greta, our brains are always predicting, always predicting, always predicting. This is another thing that I talk about uh, both in my first first book and in in seven and a half lessons and fascinating that we like that's partly what the brain is designed to do is to sort of like almost jump to conclusions before we have all the data because that's the most efficient thing pretty much right exactly it's much more efficient to jump to a conclusion and correct when the data suggests than it is to wait and react but what I was going to say is that you know so when you're faced with something that you that's unexpected or uncertain or ambiguous, that is also expensive, metabolically mm-hmm. speaking. So, oh, so you mean like surviving a global pandemic, maybe? Yeah, right, exactly. Or talking to people who you disagree with about, mm-hmm. you know, I don't know, uh, pick a topic. <laughs> um, but it's often important to learn new things and especially to learn new things about maybe topics or positions or beliefs that you don't necessarily agree with. You can think about these as conditioning your brain to be flexible, which allows your brain to be resilient, but also these are also major withdrawals that you have to think about as investments potentially that will have payoff in the future. Lisa, I could talk to you all day. This is really fun. This is really, really fun. Can I ask you one last question? You bet. What's your relationship like with your own brain? Well, 
you know, that's a really, it's an interesting way that you ask that Greta, because mm-hmm. what I would say is that um, it, the way that you phrased it on the one hand is somewhat Cartesian as if I am separate from my brain and right. I have a relationship well, that's, with it. Right. That's partly what I'm wondering is the extent to which you do feel separate from your brain and I don't at all. I mean, you, my mind is uh, who I am and what I am as a person is some emerges out of my brain's constant conversation with my body and the world around me. Your brain makes you who you are. Mm-hmm. It's not sufficient. You need a body. It's, you know, your brain wires itself to the body that you have in the world that was cultivated for you when you were young. And then you maintain that world or you change it by your own actions. Who you are is somewhat more than just your brain, but your brain is a necessary piece of of who you are. And it's important to keep it healthy and to understand how it works. That's really the only way that you can be the agent of your own destiny, I think. Well, your brain is great and you are great. Thank you so much for being under that. Oh, it's my absolute pleasure. This has been really fun. Thank you so much. One more thing you don't want to miss in just a minute. Nerdette is supported by the Sympathizer podcast from HBO. Join host Philip Nguyen in conversation with the cast, crew, and author Viet Thanh Nguyen as they discuss the making of this historic HBO original limited series. Stream new episodes of HBO's The Sympathizer Sundays exclusively on Max, and listen to The Sympathizer podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. Hello, settle down. There is a big announcement coming up. We have a bold claim to make. Well, I guess we're not really making the claim, but we are supporting it. We are elevating it to podcast. I'm just going to keep slamming this wall. We have just learned about the best holiday cookie of the year. And not only that, this recommendation is on pretty excellent authority. Alex Beggs is a senior staff writer at Bon Appetit. Who is she to decide the year's best holiday cookie, you ask? Well, we asked her and she basically just eats cookies for a living. Yeah, it's a total con. I don't know how I'm still getting away with this. (laughs) The cookie in question is called the Oat and Pecan Brittle Cookie. It is from the new cookbook by Claire Saffitz called Dessert Person, which I was already obsessed with before this interview. And this may surprise you. I feel like it's a little sacrilegious. This cookie does not have chocolate chips. There's a time and place for a chocolate chip cookie, and that is like any night of the day, 364 <laughs> days a year. But when it's holiday cookie time, mm-hmm. I'm like, I'm ready to spend all day in like my cookie factory and go really elaborate and fancy. And these cookies are so ridiculous. The process takes, you could spread it out over three days, four days if you have to. All all the comments are like, this is too complicated, but someone else can make them for me. And I am that person who I'm like, I'm ready to (laughs) to dedicate my life to making cookies. And so I'll walk you through the rest. I'll tell you why it's complicated. And I even tried to write a list of like all the pans I had out. It's like, 
you need multiple saucepans, your food processor, a stand mixer, every prep bowl you own, every spatula you own. <laughs> you got to blow your pecan budget for the year. And, and that's just like your prep. So what you do is you toast pecans, uh-huh. you cool pecans, uh-huh. make pecan brittle, you cool the pecan brittle, yep. you chop the pecan brittle. Mm-hmm. So like at this point, like a week has gone by. <laughs> That's just like one ingredient that took you all day. Right. And then you make brown butter. You cool the brown butter. You make a cookie dough. You make this pulverized brittle flour. So it's just insane. I'm telling you, it's over the top and worth every moment. I I will take this to my early grave because I've had so much sugar. And then you finish it in your stand mixer where you do the whole cream, that brown butter. And then you fold in some more oats. Oh, all of this makes complete sense, but it's insane. Then the worst part, but also, what does that even mean anymore? (laughs) You have to rest the dough overnight. You have to wait like a full evening of sleep. Wait. Anyway, the flavor gets complex and it also creates this amazing rippled texture once they bake the next day when you were like so sick of making cookies that you don't care anymore. But then they come out of the oven ginormous and you will just sit there saying, this is the best cookie I've ever made. Wow. I guarantee it. Every now and then I'll I'll make something that's really delicious and especially because I live alone like if it's really insanely good the one of the first things I'll do is like text a friend and be like I need you to make this immediately this is like yes. actually kind of an emergency. <laughs> Would you say that making this cookie is an emergency? Yes, that's why I was like I have to write about this. The world needs to know like this is the breaking this is the only breaking news that I'm capable of writing. It's like cookie news. <laughs> It's absolutely an urgent issue. Uh, I feel I feel this deeply. I, I'm with you. Also, persons who live alone, it's because the dough rests overnight, you can freeze a lot of it. So you could make yes. two cookies and then have this cookie every night for the next month and, and be so happy. And like fresh baked every night is what you're saying. Oh, yeah. Alex Beggs, thank you so much for sharing this cookie emergency with us. Anytime, Greta. Thanks for having me. Bon Appetit writer Alex Beggs making an impassioned pitch on behalf of the oat and pecan brittle cookie from the cookbook Dessert Person. You can also find the recipe on Bon Appetit's website. I gotta say, I am sold on the idea of this cookie, even the fact that it takes a million years to make. I have, in fact, made the brittle. It turned out great. Now it's just been sitting on my counter. Um, So yeah, when I finally get around to like actually completing these cookies in 2021, I'll let you know. We're also really curious to hear what your favorite holiday cookie is. I actually asked Eliana Docterman if she has a favorite holiday cookie, and she had what she called a cookie-adjacent recommendation. It is matzah covered in caramel and chocolate, and that sounds amazing. She says it's a hit. You can find the link to a recipe for that and chime in with your favorite recommendation on our Facebook group. Just search for Nerdette Headquarters. The show is produced by me and Justin Bull. Our executive producer is Brendan Banaszak, and we will see you on Tuesday for Book Club. Nerdette is supported by the Sympathizer podcast from HBO. Join host Philip Nguyen in conversation with the cast, crew, and author Viet Thanh Nguyen as they discuss the making of this historic HBO original limited series. 
Stream new episodes of HBO's The Sympathizer Sundays exclusively on Max, and listen to The Sympathizer podcast wherever you listen to podcasts.